This podcast is made possible by Sage Intact and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Pete Childs, CFO of Workfront, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 263. How as a finance leader are you driving driving change in your organization? How are you driving change within your organization? In this episode, we speak to Randall Bolton, a career CFO who is also an author. Math is not taught as a communication skill. It's taught as a computation skill. And as a result... People are not taught. They're taught to get to the right answer. They're taught to figure out how to solve problems, but they're not taught in school how to explain things. You know, I get asked, how long did it take me to write painting with numbers? And, 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 and one of the answers I give is it, it took me 30 years. A lot of the things that ended up in painting with numbers are, are things I thought or said to myself while I was standing in the shower and thinking about my job. And Listen to our complete interview with Randall after these words from our sponsor. It's a question every growing business must answer. How do you scale your organization to accommodate growth while reducing risk? Sage Intact provides the instant visibility into deep operational and financial requirements that inform decision-making when scale is top of mind. By automating error-prone manual tasks and allowing your team to focus on the analysis of more accurate information, Sage Intact provides the visibility required to confidently scale your organization. Sage Intact is the only AICPA preferred provider of cloud financial management software. So hello, we're speaking to Randall Bolton, a career CFO who is also an author. If you haven't heard of the book, Painting with Numbers, Presenting Financials and Other Numbers So People Will Understand You, this is a book that's quickly become a popular text among finance executives everywhere. It's been said that it's the first book designed to teach and treat presenting numbers as a communication skill, not as a math skill. Randall, welcome. Oh, Jack, thank you very much for having me. Well, we, of course, want to discover what led you to write painting uh, with numbers. But first, in the course of your career, you've been a CFO for a, a string of different companies. And uh, we'd love to take a look back with you and discover what were those experiences you feel best prepared you for a, for a CFO role? Well, let me go back all the way to my days as a student first, and I'll keep that part brief. But I, I had a business degree from, from Stanford. I got my MBA there. And, and before that, I went to some schools where communicating effectively was a critical part of education. And, and we were encouraged to, to write and speak in, a, in our own style, but still speak correctly uh, and and consistent with the rules of presentation. And those things really stood me in good stead. Um, going into my business career, right after business school, I was a consultant for a couple of years. Uh, and, and, and then I started working at 
one of the, I guess you would call one of the pioneers in Silicon Valley, a company called Tandem Computers, and I was there for seven years uh, before I was at Oracle. And I think what was really most useful about those seven years at Tandem was working in a different variety of functional areas. Um, I, of course, did many of the normal treasury or finance functions. I was in the treasury department. I managed the cash. I got some exposure to investor relations. But then after that, uh, for several years, I had line jobs or I had support jobs for line functions. Uh, I was a controller for a sales division and I reported to a sales VP. And then I was the controller uh, for Tandem's software research and development division uh, and, and supported a bunch of software engineers. And as it happened, was in the f first group of people who had to comply with um, uh, an accounting standard called FAS 86, which was about capitalizing software development expenditures. But, but those two experiences in sales and engineering gave me a much broader perspective uh, on what's involved in making a company successful. So uh, aside from the usual kinds of finance experiences and having had good mentors and so on, those are the things that I would point to the most that were valuable uh, to my experience as a CFO. When you, you first arrived in the CFO office, though, did you, uh, was it a, a sizable firm, or what was your first uh, finance leader tour of duty? Oh, my, my first experience, and this is always good on-the-job training, was for, was for a very small software company, um, and and it, it 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 has sunk beneath the surface of the waves, and it sank many years ago. But uh, a, a company not doing very well and is small, first of all, in small companies, you have an opportunity to get to be a CFO much earlier in your career. Um, and, and second, uh, often you learn more from the difficulties you face than from having been at a successful company. You know, my my first two finance jobs in high tech were at Tandem Computers and at Oracle Systems, both very successful companies growing very fast, and they were great experiences. But I frankly have to say that going to work for a couple of smallish software companies was a great opportunity to jump forward a few levels and take on a, a, a wider and higher range of responsibilities. Would you have done it sooner, or just just uh, reflecting back, I'm curious to hear whether you would have done things differently. No, I I I, I, I think if I'd had it to do over again, I, I I would have done it the done it the same way. The advantage of working for Tandem and Oracle was that they were larger, somewhat well-established companies. I mean, to the extent that high-tech companies back in the late '70s and early '80s. Uh, were were well established, um, but I certainly learned a lot about the nuts and bolts of financial operations and got the got plenty of different kinds of experience. So it was very useful um, before I took the the full CFO reins. But I, I'd also say that um, it, it was it was a terrific experience to find myself maybe a little more inexperienced. Than I should have been for 
being a CFO, but getting the opportunity to be one. It's sort of field of it's sort of battlefield experience before maybe you're ready for it, but it's immensely valuable throughout your career. Okay, so your your more recent career as an author, and I know uh, Painting with Numbers was first published back in 2012, but I had heard about this uh, over the last few years as you attended conferences and spoke at a number of different conferences, and one recently where uh, we crossed paths. Right. What was it? What What led you finally to um, approach the subject? When did you begin to zero in on this and then take this huge leap that, well, I'll write a book. Well, so you know, I get asked, how long did it take me to write painting with numbers? And and and, and one of the answers I give is it, it took me 30 years. That uh, uh, a lot of the things that ended up in painting with numbers are, are things I thought or said to myself while I was standing in the shower and thinking about my job and stuff like that. Uh, but you know, I commented, Jack, at the at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, about the importance of my education and being at schools that placed a great deal of store in how clearly and correctly and effectively you communicated. And throughout my career, it became clearer and clearer to me that very small changes in the way numerical information was presented could have a huge impact on how well the audience understood that information, especially an audience that was composed of people who it was very important that they understood the information, but they weren't always finance professionals. They were marketing and engineering um, and, and, and sales professionals. Math is not taught as a communication skill. It's taught as a computation skill. And as a result, people are not taught they're taught to get to the right answer. They're taught to figure out how to solve problems, but they're not taught in school how to explain things. And, I, and, I, and, and not only does it mean we have poor numerical communicators as a result, and that's true in the U.S. just as it, as it is everywhere else, but, but so many people in the audience assume that if they don't understand the numbers, it's because they're no good at math. And, and that's a tragic error because they don't push back on the people giving them the information. They don't push back and say, excuse me, but I don't understand this, and I'm really a pretty smart person. So maybe you need to find a better way to communicate this information. And so part of the message of painting with numbers is not just to the people who present the information. The subtitle is presenting financials and other numbers so people will understand you. But it's also a message to the audience for financial information and other numerical information is that if you're not understanding what's being put in front of you, maybe you need to talk to the people presented presenting the information to you and say, how can we present this in a, in a way that I can understand it better? Now, are there specific uh, financial statements that you uh, use as examples of you know, perhaps flawed communication? You, you, 
you know, first of all, I, I, I tend not to pick on gap financial statements. And, and the reason I, I, I don't pick on gap financial statements is there are very hard and fast rules about what those statements should look like. But there's, there's one financial statement, and I have a whole, it, it's the only one that I write about in great detail in painting with numbers, and that's the management P&L. And the, the, the chapter that I talk about the management P&L in, and exclusively about the management P&L, is titled, The One Report That Every Organization Needs. No company can function without a management income statement or management P&L. And it's a report that needs to be understood by people who aren't finance professionals and ideally, and this is a very powerful um, uh, thing that finance professionals can do is, and that they don't always realize, is that by the way they design reports, especially the management P&L, they can create a common language throughout the enterprise. They can define the terms that people use and think about when they're running a business. And, and in, in this chapter, um, the, one, the one report that every organization needs, I identify eight design criteria for what makes for an effective management P&L. And those design criteria are valid regardless of what the enterprise does for a living, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's services, whether it's for profit, or not-for-profit, uh, whether it's a hospital or an academic institution or a steel company. These design principles apply regardless of what the enterprise does. We'd love to uh, explore some of those with you. What would be uh, the ones that you believe should be top of mind for finance leaders? Well, thank you for asking. I, I, I love to talk about that. Um, first of all, uh, design principle number one, needless to say, is the report should fit on one page. And far too many reports are much, much longer than they need to be. But a couple of other important criteria, uh, each, each line item in the management P&L that fits on one page, but each line item, um, the, the line items should be decision-focused. That is, when a manager sees what the number is in that line, whether it's salaries or travel and entertainment or legal expenses or whatever line you is one of the few of those that you've chosen to have, it should suggest an important set of decisions. Uh, it, 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 it shouldn't be irrelevant to the company, and it shouldn't be so broad that you couldn't have any clue as to what you do next if you see that this number is either too high or too low. So that's a, that's a criterion. Another one, and this is one that people don't always think about, is that the ordering of the line items in the report. Remember, the, you're giving this report to people who are only going to spend five or ten minutes looking at your report. And one of the points I often make is that if they're going to spend five minutes reading your report, they can either spend five minutes absorbing the content in your report or they can spend four minutes figuring out how to read your report and one minute absorbing the content. And obviously, you'd rather they spent that five minutes fully absorbing the content. And one of the 
keys to managers having an easy time reading the report is that there should be an intuitive ordering of the line items so that if you've got 10 or 15 expense lines, they should be ordered on the, on the report in a way that makes intuitive sense to the reader. Otherwise, the report becomes very difficult to read, and that five minutes is not spent in a valuable way. So that's, I just gave you three of the uh, eight criteria. We all uh, tend to learn from our mistakes, often best, uh, and the book does point out uh, some of the common missteps, I guess, uh, that people make when communicating with numbers. What would you share with us as far as uh, learning from our mistakes? You know, one of the sort of little motifs in painting with numbers, uh, I, I went to an Episcopalian prep school for a couple of years, and I learned about the seven deadly sins. And so I decided that throughout the book I would identify some deadly sins of presenting numbers. And uh, that as it happens, there's more than seven. There are 18 deadly sins sprinkled throughout the book. And, and everybody makes mistakes. There's nothing wrong with making mistakes. Your audience doesn't expect your information to be perfect. But there are some mistakes that you shouldn't make, you should be careful about, because it affects your relationship with your audience. It affects how they think about you and about your intelligence and your grasp of the subject matter and their respect for you. Uh, I'll give you an example from writing English. That is, uh, when you see, most people, when they see somebody who clearly cannot tell or don't know when an apostrophe does or doesn't belong in the word it's, even though that's a mistake that never makes the sentence impossible to understand, they form a conclusion about the writer's literacy when they see that mistake being made. And deadly sin number one, and it shows up in the first three or four pages of the book, is not right justifying a column of numbers. That doesn't make the numbers impossible to understand, but in the Arabic numeral system, which is a beautiful invention, one of the advantages is that Numbers in the Arabic numeral system are easy to read and understand. An important element of making them easy to read and understand is right justifying them. And so centering them or left justifying them is not only destructive to the reader's ability to absorb the content that's being presented, but it's the kind of mistake that tells the reader that the presenter may or may not know what he's doing. During your talks and throughout uh, the book, you emphasize that when communicating numbers, a business leader must have a, a sense of narrative and understand the rules of grammar and have respect uh, for their audience. And these are elements of communication, perhaps, we seldom think about. Um, too, too often we expect maybe the numbers to say it all for us. Uh, would you uh, explain further for us uh, the points you're making here? Well, what I want people to do when they're presenting numbers, when they're presenting numerical information, is to think about how they're presenting the information in exactly the same way that they would think about writing an important memo or getting ready to give an important oral presentation. And every, uh, and every communication skill 
whether it's writing or speaking or, pr or putting numbers on a sheet of paper. Every communication skill um, re requires some awareness in, in three or four areas. The first one is you have to know the rules, uh, that you need to present information grammatically and correctly. Uh, when you're writing, you have to know that the subject agrees with the verb, and you should spell the words right, or you're distracting your readers. And there are similar rules when you're presenting numbers. The second thing is that you have to have a sense of narrative flow. There's a reason you're being asked a question. There's a reason you're providing information to people. You're telling a story, even if it's descriptive, even if you're just you're, you're not trying to get somebody to reach a conclusion you're just describing how the company did in the last fiscal period you have to have a sense of narrative flow you have to have a sense of how the reader's eyes and his and his or her mind are going to wander across the page from left to right and top to bottom so a sense of narrative flow is critical next you need to demonstrate respect and compassion for your audience. You shouldn't, be, you, you shouldn't convey things that suggest arrogance. You shouldn't convey things that suggest you don't know what you're doing. Uh, you need to have a sense that you are providing a service, a valuable service to your audience if you do it in a correct way. You're not doing them a favor. They're not doing you a favor by reading your report. You're doing them a favor. So you have to demonstrate respect and compassion for your audience. And the fourth thing that you need to consider, and this is true with all communications media, is that when you're communicating, you're constantly sending messages to your audience about your intelligence, about your grasp of the subject matter, about your work ethic, uh, about your honesty, about your professionalism about your respect for, your, for the people you're presenting to. There are lots of little things. When you, when you meet somebody, a firm handshake sends a very different message from a limp handshake. Giving a presentation with your back facing the audience and talking to the screen sends a message. These are little things that people are constantly looking for in communication because everyone's so deluged with information that they're looking for ways to form conclusions about you and, and, and to give you another example, many companies routinely don't consider job applicants if there's even a single typo in the resume. And that's not necessarily fair, but it's the way it is. And companies are desperate to narrow down the number of people they talk to. And one of the things they choose is uh, are all the words spelled right, and, and is this resume grammatically correct? And the same is true with numbers. Because it's an act of communicating, people are looking for things to make them feel good and, and not critical of the information you're presenting. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We have more of our interview after these words from our sponsor. 
You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Randall, we have time for one last question for you. Uh, when it comes uh, to finance leaders uh, who believe they, they need to be doing a better job communicating their numbers, uh, what uh, advice would you offer them when it comes to putting their best uh, foot forward in this effort? Well, well, let me make a self-serving statement first. Is uh, One thing that would be a, a, a very effective thing for you to do, for them to do, would be to buy a copy of Painting with Numbers. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty simple. It's straightforward. It's, it's fun to read. Uh, and it may seem pretty obvious, but if it were really as obvious as it seems, then more people would communicate numerical information effectively. But remember... That, that the skill that is most likely to discriminate very successful people in any career, whether it's finance or sales or engineering, compared to people who uh, are less successful, is the ability to communicate. And presenting numbers is communicating. And then I'll make one more point, and that is, especially if this is uh, a session oriented at people who are advancing in their careers and their managers or or controllers or that kind of thing. Remember that you're managing people who are presenting information, who are communicating uh, with the people they support throughout the company. And how effectively your staff communicates is a direct reflection on you as their leader. Excellent. I love that. Okay. I'm going to, I wrap up with this simple uh, uh, outro here. I just say, Randall Bolton, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, it's Jack. At CFO Thought Leader, we're interested in hearing from you. We want to find out what you would like to hear more of or less of. And so we've created an ever-so-short survey in order to learn from you. The survey is now available right on CFOThoughtLeader.com's homepage. It's open to career finance executives of every rank. Meanwhile, it's that time of year again. CFO Appreciation Day is quickly approaching, and we are once more firing up our kiln and making our CFO Thought Leader Mug 2019 edition available to survey takers who enlist two or more of their finance team members to complete the survey. We'll mail you our also coveted CFO Thought Leader Mug at zero cost. So visit us at cfothoughtleader.com and give us an earful. We would greatly appreciate it. 
Some rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you.